It's the 13th of March in the year of our salvation, 2009. And you're back with Father John Zolsdorf and another podcast. Today we welcome as our guest Pope Benedict XVI, going to read his letter to bishops of the world concerning his lifting of the excommunications of the four bishops of the Society of St. Pius X. Then I'll talk about one or two uh, particulars. Uh, there are way too many things uh, to talk about that I can easily fit into a podcast, but I'll just focus on one or two. Then we'll hear some of your voicemail. On Thursday, the 12th of March, the Holy Father issued the text of a letter that he wrote to all of the bishops of the world. And so right, right away we have to take note that this the people being addressed are the bishops of the world. Of course, the whole world is allowed to listen in or read in. So obviously it's written to everybody as well. But the, really, the ones who are being addressed are the bishops of the world. And in this letter, the Holy Father expresses uh, several very important things. First of all, that there were some mistakes made in the way that uh, the lifting of the excommunication was communicated to the world. Uh, he said that, of course, you know, not enough uh, attention was given to information that was otherwise easily uh, obtained and uh, insufficient care was taken to communicate the reasons well and so forth. But I mean, this, this stuff has been rehashed again and again, and we don't have to go over it here. But he also, in a astonishingly novel way for a pope, expresses his own sense of sorrow and pain at the reaction that uh, has been stirred up in the world about this uh, the, this gesture of mercy, this hand uh, which was extended to a group of our Catholic brothers and sisters out there who are in danger of drifting into schism. The Holy Father doesn't say that they are in schism. He says that they are in danger of schism. He's very clear about that in his letter. And, of course, uh, this has been the consistent message also of the president of the Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Dei, Cardinal Castrian Hoyos, they are not in the SSPX, the Society of St. Pius X, isn't in schism, but it's in danger of schism. And that action has to be taken now. So the Holy Father, as Peter, as the successor of Peter, has the responsibility given to him by Christ himself to foster unity within the church. It's his job to try to reconcile Christians and bring about unity, whether those reconciliations are big or whether they are small. And 
So it is his role and his duty in the church to extend a hand toward the society of St. Pius X. And those who have reacted negatively to this, he says, well, I'm sorry we didn't you know, do it quite right, or we could have done it better. But on the other hand, you should know better than to treat the Pope this way, and to treat the gesture of mercy this way, and to treat the people on the receiving end of the mercy this way too. Because you yourselves are not entirely at fault, you know, blameless here. There are two different groups here that are being addressed by the Pope. There are those who have, you know, kind of separated them, themselves and behaved a little bit, you know, arrogantly on one side, saying that they are the only of, defenders of tradition. And then on the other hand, there's another group being addressed, those who put themselves forward as the great defenders of the council, who have n- lost sight that the entire history of the church and it, the entire church's doctrine has to be taken into consideration, and not just that which you know began with Vatican II or followed thereafter. So we have these two different groups tearing at each other and tearing at the Pope, and everyone is uh, everyone is really creating kind of a scandalous uh, a scandalous sight before the world. And the Pope even addresses this issue that we lack credibility before the world when we are divided in this way. So this letter in a Pauline year addressed to bishops, and I need to come back to that just for a second, but addressed to bishops has very much the tenor, the tone, the style of something that Paul would have written to an ecclesial community that was in turmoil. Now this bit about the bishops, it's addressed to the bishops, this letter is. And the Holy Father talks about the gesture of reconciliation for these four men, these four bishops, to return to greater unity of the church because the excommunication that was imposed on them was you know, intended as a remedy so that the College of Bishops wouldn't be wounded in this way anymore. That's why ecclesiastical penalties are imposed to heal wounds, to be a remedy remedy for what has gone before. Now, some sins, some ecclesiastical delicts are so serious that they tear at the fabric of the church. That's why there's an excommunication when a bishop is consecrated without the mandate of the Pope, without the permission of the Holy See. And indeed, in 1988, these four bishops were consecrated against the express will of the Pope, not just that they lacked the mandate. It was a, you know against their will. So there was an excommunication uh, imposed in order to create a remedy. Now, the point of the excommunication was to create a remedy. Now, when it's clear that this excommunication is not bringing about what it was supposed to bring about, this Holy Father has decided to take another track, but still for the purpose 
of healing the wound in the College of Bishops, jeopardized by the separation of the SSPX. So, well, look, I could, I could go into all sorts of different things, and we'll, we'll get into a couple of other points afterwards, but let's hear Pope Benedict. Let's just hear the words of his letter uh, expressed to all of the bishops of the world about the lifting of the excommunications of the four bishops of the Society of St. Pius X. This was issued on the 12th of March, 2009. Letter of His Holiness Pope Benedict XVI to the bishops of the Catholic Church concerning the remission of the excommunication of the four bishops consecrated by Archbishop Lefebvre. Dear brothers in the Episcopal ministry, the remission of the excommunication of the four bishops consecrated in 1988 by Archbishop Lefebvre without the mandate of the Holy See has for many reasons caused, both within and beyond the Catholic Church, a discussion more heated than any we have seen for a long time. Many bishops felt perplexed by an event which came about unexpectedly and was difficult to view positively in light of the issues and tasks facing the Church today. Even though many bishops and members of the faithful were disposed in principle to take a positive view of the Pope's concern for reconciliation, the question remained whether such a gesture was fitting in view of the genuinely urgent demands of the life of the faith in our time. Some groups, on the other hand, openly accused the Pope of wanting to turn back the clock to before the Council. As a result, an avalanche of protests was unleashed, whose bitterness laid bare wounds deeper than those of the present moment. I therefore feel obliged to offer you, dear brothers, a word of clarification, which ought to help you understand the concerns which led me and the competent offices of the Holy See to take this step. In this way, I hope to contribute to peace in the Church. An unforeseen mishap for me was the fact that the Williamson case came on top of the remission of the excommunication. The discreet gesture of mercy towards four bishops, ordained validly but not legitimately, suddenly appeared as something completely different, as the repudiation of reconciliation between Christians and Jews, and thus as the reversal of what the Council had laid down in this regard to guide the Church's path. A gesture of reconciliation with an ecclesial group engaged in a process of separation thus turned into its very antithesis, an apparent step backwards with regard to all the steps of reconciliation between Christians and Jews taken since the Council, steps which my own work as a theologian had sought from the beginning to take part in and support. That this overlapping of two opposed processes took place and momentarily upset peace between Christians and Jews, as well as peace within the Church, is something which I can only deeply deplore. I have been told that 
consulting the information available on the Internet would have made it possible to perceive the problem early on. I have learned the lesson that in the future, in the Holy See, we will have to pay greater attention to that new source of news. I was saddened by the fact that even Catholics who, after all, might have had a better knowledge of the situation, thought they had to attack me with open hostility. Precisely for this reason, I thank all the more our Jewish friends, who quickly helped to clear up the misunderstanding and to restore the atmosphere of friendship and trust which, as in the days of Pope John Paul II, has also existed throughout my pontificate and, thank God, continues to exist. Another mistake which I deeply regret is the fact that the extent and limits of the provision of 21 January 2009 were not clearly and adequately explained at the moment of its publication. The excommunication affects individuals, not institutions. An episcopal ordination lacking a pontifical mandate raises the danger of a schism, since it jeopardizes the unity of the College of Bishops with the Pope. Consequently, the Church must react by employing her most severe punishment, excommunication, with the aim of calling those thus punished to repent and to return to unity. Twenty years after the ordinations, this goal has sadly not yet been attained. The remission of the excommunication has the same aim as that of the punishment, namely, to invite the four bishops once more to return. This gesture was possible once the interested parties had expressed their recognition in principle of the Pope and his authority as pastor, albeit with some reservations in the area of obedience to his doctrinal authority and to the authority of the council. Here I return to the distinction between individuals and institutions. The remission of the excommunication was a measure taken in the field of ecclesiastical discipline, the individuals were freed from the burden of conscience constituted by the most serious of ecclesiastical penalties. This disciplinary level needs to be distinguished from the doctrinal level. The fact that the Society of St. Pius X does not possess a canonical status in the Church is not, in the end, based on disciplinary but on doctrinal reasons. As long as the society does not have a canonical status in the church, its ministers do not exercise legitimate ministries in the church. There needs to be a distinction, then, between the disciplinary level, which deals with individuals as such, and the doctrinal level, at which ministry and institution are involved. In order to make this clear once again, until the doctrinal questions are clarified, the society has no canonical status in the church, and its ministers, even though they have been freed of the ecclesiastical penalty, 
do not legitimately exercise any ministry in the church. In light of this situation, it is my intention henceforth to join the Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Dei, the body which has been competent since 1988 for those communities and persons who, coming from the Society of St. Pius X or from similar groups, wish to return to full communion with the Pope, to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. This will make it clear that the problems now to be addressed are essentially doctrinal in nature and concern primarily the acceptance of the Second Vatican Council and the post-conciliar magisterium of the popes. The collegial bodies with which the congregation studies questions which arise, especially the ordinary Wednesday meeting of cardinals and the annual or biennial plenary session, ensure the involvement of the prefects of the different Roman congregations and representatives from the world's bishops in the process of decision-making. The Church's teaching authority cannot be frozen in the year 1962. This must be quite clear to the society. But some of those who put themselves forward as great defenders of the Council also need to be reminded that Vatican II embraces the entire doctrinal history of the Church. Anyone who wishes to be obedient to the Council has to accept the faith professed over the centuries and cannot sever the roots from which the tree draws its life. I hope, dear brothers, that this serves to clarify the positive significance and also the limits of the provision of 21 January 2009. But the question still remains. Was this measure needed? Was it really a priority? Aren't there other things perhaps more important? Of course there are more important and urgent matters. I believe that I set forth clearly the priorities of my pontificate in the addresses which I gave at its beginning. Everything that I said then continues unchanged as my plan of action. The first priority for the successor of Peter was laid down by the Lord in the upper room in the clearest of terms. Quote, you strengthen your brothers. Luke twenty two thirty two. Peter himself formulated this priority anew in his first letter. Quote, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. First Peter three fifteen. In our own days. When in vast areas of the world the faith is in danger of dying out like a flame which no longer has fuel, the overriding priority is to make God present in this world and to show men and women the way to God, not just any God, but the God who spoke on Sinai, to that God whose face we recognize in a love which presses, quote, to the end. Confer John 13.1 In Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. The real problem at this moment of our history 
is that God is disappearing from the human horizon, and, with the dimming of the light which comes from God, humanity is losing its bearings with increasingly evident destructive effects. Leading men and women to God, to the God who speaks in the Bible. This is the supreme and fundamental priority of the Church and of the successor of Peter at the present time. A logical consequence of this is that we must have at heart the unity of all believers. Their disunity, their disagreement among themselves, calls into question the credibility of their talk of God. Hence, the effort to promote a common witness by Christians to their faith, ecumenism, is part of the supreme priority. Added to this is the need for all those who believe in God to join in seeking peace, to attempt to draw closer to one another, and to journey together, even with their different images of God, toward the source of light. This is interreligious dialogue. Whoever proclaims that God is love, quote, to the end, has to bear witness to love. In loving devotion to the suffering, in the rejection of hatred and enmity, this is the social dimension of the Christian faith, of which I spoke in the encyclical Deus Caritas est. So if the arduous task of working for faith, hope, and love in the world is presently, and in various ways always, the Church's real priority, then part of this is also made up of acts of reconciliation, small and not so small. That the quiet gesture of extending a hand gave rise to a huge uproar, and thus became exactly the opposite of a gesture of reconciliation, is a fact which we must accept. But I ask now, was it and is it truly wrong in this case to meet halfway the brother who, quote, has something against you? Confirm Matthew 5, 23 and following. And to seek reconciliation? Should not civil society also try to forestall forms of extremism and to incorporate their eventual adherence to the extent possible in the great currents shaping social life, and thus avoid their being segregated with all its consequences? Can it be completely mistaken to work to break down obstinacy and narrowness, and to make space for what is positive and retrievable for the whole? I myself saw, in the years after 1988, how the return of communities which had been separated from Rome changed their interior attitudes. I saw how returning to the bigger and broader church enabled them to move beyond one-sided positions, and broke down rigidity so that positive energies could emerge for the whole. Can we be totally indifferent about a community which has 491 priests, 215 seminarians, 
six seminaries, 88 schools, two university-level institutes, 117 religious brothers, 164 religious sisters, and thousands of lay faithful? Should we casually let them drift farther from the church? I think, for example, of the 491 priests. We cannot know how mixed their motives may be. All the same, I do not think that they would have chosen the priesthood if, alongside various distorted and unhealthy elements, they did not have a love for Christ and a desire to proclaim Him and with Him the living God. Can we simply exclude them as representatives of a radical fringe from our pursuit of reconciliation and unity? What would then become of them? Certainly, for some time now, and once again on this specific occasion, we have heard from some representatives of that community many unpleasant things, arrogance and presumptuousness, an obsession with one-sided positions, etc. To tell the truth, I must add that I have also received a number of touching testimonials of gratitude which clearly showed an openness of heart. But should not the great church also allow herself to be generous in the knowledge of her great breadth, in the knowledge of the promise made to her? Should not we, as good educators, also be capable of overlooking various faults and making every effort to open up broader vistas? And should we not admit that some unpleasant things have also emerged in church circles? At times, one gets the impression that our society needs to have at least one group to which no tolerance may be shown, which one can easily attack and hate. And should someone dare to approach them, in this case the Pope, he too loses any right to tolerance. He too can be treated hatefully, without misgiving or restraint. Dear brothers, in the days when I first had the idea of writing this letter, by chance, during a visit to the Roman seminary, I had to interpret and comment on Galatians five, thirteen to 15 I was surprised at the directness with which that passage speaks to us about the present moment. Quote, Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you are not consumed by one another. I am always tempted to see these words as another of the rhetorical excesses which we occasionally find in St. Paul. To some extent, that may also be the case. But sad to say, this, quote, biting and devouring also exists in the church today as expression of a poorly understood freedom. Should we be surprised that we too are no better than the Galatians? 
that at the very least we are threatened by the same temptations. That we must always learn anew the proper use of freedom, and that we must always learn anew the supreme priority which is love. The day I spoke about this at the major seminary, the Feast of Our Lady of Trust was being celebrated in Rome. And so it is. Mary teaches us trust. She leads us to her Son, in whom all of us can put our trust. He will be our guide, even in turbulent times. And so I would like to offer heartfelt thanks to all the many bishops who have lately offered me touching tokens of trust and affection, and above all assured me of their prayers. My thanks also go to all the faithful who in these days have given me testimony of their constant fidelity to the successor of St. Peter. May the Lord protect all of us and guide our steps along the way of peace. This is the prayer that rises up instinctively from my heart at the beginning of this Lent, a liturgical season particularly suited to interior purification, one which invites all of us to look with renewed hope to the light which awaits us at Easter. With my special apostolic blessing, I remain yours in the Lord. Benedict XVI, from the Vatican, 10 March, 2009. In his letter, the Holy Father uh, mentions Galatians. As a matter of fact, that passage from Galatians 5 uh, forms a lot of the, uh, the foundation of what uh, the Holy Father is trying to express about the context in which this controversy erupted. Now, if you don't happen to know uh, what the letter of Galatians is all about, uh, you could just usually reach for a, a Bible or a Bible commentary and pick it up and take a look at, uh, see if there's an introduction. Well, I've just picked up my copy of the new Oxford Annotated Bible with Apocrypha. It's the expanded edition, the Revised Standard Translation, and it has, uh, at the very beginning of Galatians, a short introduction, and I might as well just read this to you so that you can get a sense of what's going on. Often called the Mania Carta of Christian Liberty, the letter to the Galatians deals with the question whether a Gentile must become a Jew before he can become a Christian. Certain Judaizing teachers had infiltrated the churches of Galatia in Central Asia Minor, which Paul had previously founded, Acts 16.6, declaring that in addition to having faith in Jesus Christ, a Christian was obliged to keep the Mosaic law. Paul insists, on the contrary, that a man becomes right with God only by faith in Christ and not by the performance of good works, ritual observances, and the like. And then there are some quotations here. 
So serious was the crisis in Galatia that Paul dispenses with his customary expression of thanksgiving and commendation and plunges directly into a vigorous defense of his apostolic authority and the validity of his teaching. The central part of the letter is an exposition of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Lest some should imagine that this doctrine leads to a life of indifference to the moral code, Paul concludes with certain practical applications of his teaching. The importance of this brief letter is hard to overestimate. Written perhaps around A.D. 55 during Paul's third missionary journey, it gives many autobiographical details of the Apostle's earlier life and evangelistic activity. Here are set forth with impassioned eloquence the true function of the Mosaic Law and its relation to God's grace manifested in Christ. The declaration of the principles reiterated in these six chapters made Christianity a world religion instead of a Jewish sect. Now that was just a you know, really simple uh, introduction in a commonly used study Bible um, many, many students have on their desktops. Uh, the New Oxford Annotated Bible with Apocrypha. It's the Revised Standard Version. And there are all sorts of different uh, good resources, Catholic resources, that you can use. For example, the Navarre Bible series is very good. Um, I don't happen to have the volume on Galatians, but uh, so I just you know grabbed a hold of a, a Bible on my desk and opened it up and took a look to get the context of it. It's important sometimes to consider the context uh, when someone as reflective as the Holy Father pulls out a really important verse that he uses as a foundation of a significant portion of his reflection on a burning question or issue of our time, it's important to to see you know where he's coming from with the verse of Scripture. I mean, the Holy Father knows Scripture really well, and he knows enough not just to pull a verse out as a proof text uh, and, and, and plug it in. So this is all about religious freedom, and it's freedom in the sense that Christians, by their relationship with Christ, are free, but they're not absolutely free to do whatever they want, as if free from God's law or free from the responsibilities of what it is to be a disciple in Christ. They are free within those responsibilities. Now, if we take this and, you know, maybe apply it to our own time, the Holy Father is talking certainly about the, you know, the biting at each other and take heed that you're not consumed by one another. It's interesting, St. John uh, Chrysostom, who often preached with very, very harsh words in, in his uh, preaching on Galatians, when he's talking about this very verse of biting and devouring at each other, he says, you know, he's not that Paul isn't talking literally here that people are, you know, biting each other in the flesh, but biting each other in the flesh with their teeth wouldn't be as bad as what, you know, or, or as horrible as what happens when you Bite someone's soul with your own soul. When you savage other people on that level, that's far worse than if they were actually physically going at each other. Well, that's what's going on in the church today. 
over the whole issue of the reconciliation or potential reconciliation of the SSPX. And the Holy Father is talking about our responsibility as people who profess a faith in Christ to treat each other in the proper way. We are not free simply to savage one another over differences. And in his letter, the Holy Father makes it very clear that there is room in the church for people with differing positions. We have a large and a broad church. And so we don't have to be simply one-sided in a rigid way that could exclude the positive insights that others might have. Now let's let's take this another way. Let's let's just, you know, go down the 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 road of continuity, the theme of continuity that this Holy Father has uh, imposed uh, really at the core of his whole pontificate. We've all heard about our Holy Father's uh, putting continuity as a keystone of his pontificate. His pontificate is in part a reflection on continuity. And what he's working to do is heal an attitude or an interpretive principle of discontinuity and rupture that has been so very prevalent since the Second Vatican Council. There are many people out there who have seen the council as an opportunity to cause a break with the past, as if the council were a brand new beginning, and that everything that went before the council no longer had to be taken into um, positive uh, consideration or integrated together with the developments of the council or after the council. That creates a rupture, a discontinuity, a break with the past, which is not healthy in any sphere of the church's activity. So that's a very obvious kind of rupture, this break with the past, trying to see the council as a new theological or ecclesiological starting point. And they do great harm by working from this view. If you take an insufficient positive consideration of the past in any sphere of the church's life, you wind up doing great harm. But there's another kind of rupture, another rupture which is less obvious, and that comes from uh, the people who defend the past and all its wonders and treasures and, and deep uh, advances, while not taking sufficient account of the exigencies of the church in the present modern world, of not taking sufficient account of a progress or the possibility that there can be an authentic development and deepening and enriching of doctrine and practice without causing a substantive change in doctrine. That is, changing the teaching of the church so that it really means something else, or a warping of the, the church's teaching, uh, causing a... a, a uh, a defect, or breaking the church's perennial teaching. There is a possibility of authentic development without substantive change in doctrine. And so people who want to freeze the church at a certain year 
or, you know, maybe not just like a year, but a certain era or a certain, you know, way of, of doing things, certain time period, maybe, and deny the possibility of broadening our theological reflection, they also do great harm because the world does present to us and as individuals and to us as a church new circumstances, new challenges, new perils, new questions, new exigencies. The things that we face today weren't faced by people in the past. And the work of the past can give us deep insight into how to answer the questions and, and exigencies that we have today. But it may be necessary to expand and deepen and broaden the uh, the progress from the past in order to respond properly to what we have to face today. And so from that point of view, we can see how rupture from the past, that is the uh, the application of the hermeneutic of discontinuity, these rupture theologians who, you know, think that the past, you know, we've broken from the past, and Vatican II is a brand new, uh, brand new start. That rupture from the past is the far more dangerous of the two. Rupture from the future, that is, you know, desiring to freeze the church and not, you know, take in, into consideration, you know, things that, you know, follow afterwards. That's a little easier to correct because it's, you know, possible to, you know, just begin to expand out. And after all, it's, it's part of the very church's nature to tend toward the unchanging, to resist the effects of the world, to resist that which is shifting and never fixed uh, and to guide the world toward her Lord who remains the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow as we hear in the liturgy in the Triduum. It's part of the warp and weft of the church to be conservative, to be traditional. Now, there are so many different, so many other dimensions of this letter that we could drill into. Maybe I can do that in the future. But... I think it's important to stress, uh, going back to that, that passage from the Galatians, that as disciples in Christ, we have a freedom. But it is the freedom of the disciples of Christ to, teach, to treat each other with charity and to seek together the truth for the good of the church and not just necessarily our desire to defend our own little wrinkle or our own little piece of turf. The Holy Father has expressed great pain at what he has seen as the divisions that have been caused in the church by people with a false understanding of their freedom within the church. And this letter is an attempt to offer corrective to offer all, like Paul did to the Galatians, to offer a remedy for the wound that has torn apart our church for many years. Mandato, no, 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 no
I'm absolutely delighted to be able to share with you some of the voicemail that came in through my Skype account. Hi there, Father Z. We just got done, my family and I just got done listening to your most recent podcast, and we have to say that we loved it. The kids especially liked, uh, you know, we're too jonesing on the uh, God of the Best discussion, although I loved it a lot, but we really loved the uh, tales from Don Camilo, and uh, just thought they were charming and enchanting, and we listened to them uh, while we were eating dinner. It kept everyone nice and quiet. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, and uh, God bless you. Keep up the great work. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for that. It's nice to know what use people are making of the podcast, and if I could be of help to you and yours to uh, keep mealtimes calm, I'm then I'm very glad. Thanks. Hello, Father Zulzar. This is Father Hector Perez. I'm calling from Pensacola, Florida. Uh, and I'm on your Facebook, which probably you have thousands of them. But anyway, I was just calling uh, to speak about Linz and, and Father Wagner. Uh, I have friends who are in Austria and in Germany, and they have told me that at the Cathedral of St. Stephen in Vienna, for two years already on St. Valentine's Day, the pastor or the vicar of, or the rector rather, of the cathedral has blessed homosexual couples. And so uh, the whole situation of Austria is all the way, the fish stinks from the head, as they say in Italian, is pesce puzza della testa. Anyway, God bless you and keep up the good work. And if you can put in a good word for me and St. Stephen at Pensacola, we have the traditional Mass every Sunday at 10.30 and a low Mass every Thursday at 6 uh, p.m., followed by benediction. God bless you. You know, what a terrible scandal for God's people. First of all, it's at the cathedral, right? Distortion of a saint's day, St. Valentine's. And then it's a distortion of the church's teaching by giving people the impression of something that is impossible, especially about, you know, something having to do with the nature that's written into our hearts. It's just such a thumb in the eye of the Catholic people. Uh, it, it's very sad, and it seems like Austria has all sorts of problems right now. We really need to pray for the Austrians. You know, think about that was just a, such a great bastion that held out in the Catholic faith against the onslaught of the Protestant revolt. But, you know, the corruptio optimi pessima. Isn't that true? It seems like the devil really, really attacks the things that are the, are the most beautiful. But I'm so glad to hear, Reverend Father, about your progress, your brick-by-brick progress with the older form of Mass. People must be delighted with that, and I hope they're very, very happy and everything is going smoothly. That's wonderful news. Thank you. Hi, Father Z. Thank you for all the work for the church you do, especially your blog and podcasts. Uh, My name is John, and I currently live in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, USA. I love the extraordinary form of the Mass, and I was blessed to be able to attend the ordination of two Institute of Christ the King priests uh, at the hands of His Grace Archbishop Burke using the older form in uh, St. Louis two years ago. Uh, But I often wonder about the older forms of the other sacraments, especially confession. Right now, I confess about once a month using the newer ritual, 
and I'm curious about the ritual of confession in Forest in 1962. I've never gone owing, I guess, to my fear of not knowing what to expect. I know priests are usually welcoming to those who don't know what to do, but I always avoid going to confession in churches using the older form of all the sacraments. Any light you could shed on this topic would be helpful. Again, thank you for all you do for so many of us. God bless. Well, thanks for that good question. Uh, first of all, the effect of the sacrament of penance, whether it's in the new form or the old form, is precisely the same. Your sins are forgiven. And uh, it also strengthens you against sinning in the future. Those are the effects of the sacrament. You're reconciled to God. You're reconciled to the church. And your sins are forgiven. They're taken away from your soul. So the effect is the same. And more or less, the manner is the same too. Now, you know, in the newer form, you might have the priest, you know, reading some scripture or, you know, maybe if it's a face-to-face -face thing, there's going to be, a, you know, a little more chatting involved. I don't, I don't know. It depends really on the priest. But in the older form, the standard way of making your confession still applies. You go in, you ask the priest for a blessing. Uh, as you begin your confession, the priest may or may not say something audible as he uh, blesses you and asks God to help you as you make your confession. And then you say how long it's been since your last confession and what your sins are. Uh, of course, exposing them in both number and in kind, holding back nothing of the mortal sins. You can ask a question. He'll answer your questions. He might ask you a question if you haven't been clear. Go ahead and answer it. You know, just very straightforward. Don't hold anything back. You don't have to ramble. Just, you know, give the regular information. Uh, he will give you a, a little piece of advice. He will impose upon you a penance. He will ask you to say your act of contrition. And then he will give you absolution. Now, the, in the older way, the form of absolution is a little different. It'll be in Latin, of course. And the older form of absolution tends to stress also the possible juridical penalties, the censures that you might have fallen into. Uh, don't worry about that because your sins are going to be forgiven at the same time. And it might also be that you won't hear the priest say very much. He might be actually saying part of the formula of absolution uh, for your censures and your sins, uh, kind of in a low voice, while you are saying your act of contrition. That's an old way to do it. You see, a lot of priests would wait until they would hear your expression of sorrow for your sin because priests had to have a demonstration that you were sorrow, sorry for your sins. And that's one of the reasons why that old-fashioned act of contrition is so very useful. So don't be afraid of going to confession, even in the older form. Follow your regular way of doing it. There's no reason to be nervous about it. Just you know, be mindful that the words of absolution might sound a little bit different. Otherwise, the effects are precisely the same, and I'm so glad you're interested in the sacrament of penance. Hello, Father. Uh, my name is Kelsey. I am a high school student hailing from a northern suburb of Dallas, Texas. Um, and I just want to drop you a line to say that last night, my mother made an enormous pan of that baked eggplant recipe that you posted a while ago. And our family of eight 
devoured it. There is not a bite left. <laughs> and I just wanted to thank you for posting the recipe because we really enjoyed it and uh, we were singing your praises around the dinner table. I am in no way, shape, or form a food critic, but in my estimation, it was superb. Um, I also uh, just wanted to say thank you very much for your blog. Um, our family thoroughly enjoys it. It's our computer homepage and it's the catalyst for many meaningful and fruitful family conversations. We must talk about you a lot because the other day during Mass, my little sister, um, she's three, asked my mom if our, if our pastor's name was Father Z. Uh, so thank you so much for being such an insightful and constant source of our family's continuing Catholic education at home. Um, please keep posting away and uh, keep the recipes rolling. <laughs> God bless you and have a great day, Father. Bye-bye. Oh, thanks so much for that input. A cute story about your sister. Uh, it's fun. But, the, you know, the really uh, really heartwarming part of that is that some recipe that I posted on the blog, which is really easy to make, uh, and especially if you've got a large group of people, he's talking about eight people at the table, that uh, a nice big, a nice big uh, baking dish or pan full of eggplant uh, parmesan is... It's very help, you know, very helpful for feeding that number of mouths, you know, because it's so filling and it's delicious too. It's really easy to make. It doesn't cost all that much to make. Yeah, but the I think the essential part is that uh, what I really like is that people were gathered around a table and all eating together and you know discussing about you know, who knows what, uh, talking about their day or talking about what had to be done or you know basically creating those wonderful bonds. A family and the the table the meal time is so important for that and I'm afraid that in our society uh, so many families aren't taking advantage of the wonderful bonds that can be created or strengthened uh, through all eating together there's something wonderful about all being at a table everybody's knees are under the same table together and you're passing things around and talking and so forth. So that, it's, really, it's really nice to hear uh, about your family, so many people uh, enjoying a meal time together. Great voicemail. Thanks for that so much. With that, I'm going to wrap this up. Thanks, folks, for listening. I hope you'll take time uh, to delve into the Holy Father's letter and uh, reflect on it a little bit. Uh, talk about it among yourselves. Uh, uh, tease out those uh, elements of it which may be useful for your own examination of conscience. And uh, do come and visit us at the blog, wdtprs.com. That's Whiskey Delta Tango Papa Romeo Sierra.com. Com. What does the prayer really say? You can also get there if you want to tell your friends, you know, a little easier address. You can use fatherzonline.com, F-A-T-H-E-R-Z-Online.com. 
www.thepeopleshow.com. And if you want to leave voicemail, you can find the numbers on the left sidebar of the blog. Just scroll down and you'll find a graphic that says, Call Father Z, leave voicemail. You can do so using Skype, and the Skype address is WDTPRS. And there are two phone numbers, one in the USA and one in the UK. The USA phone number is 651-314-4554. And in the UK, it's a London prefix, 020. Then 8123-1545. That's 1545. I hope you'll call and leave voicemail. It's a lot of fun. So thanks for listening, and as this Lenten discipline continues, please pray for me as I will for you.